Hey friends, this is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast bonus episode. About two weeks ago, the author Allison Dixon joined us for a surprisingly bright conversation about darkness. This week, I joined Allison on her podcast, Ding Dong Darkness Time, a show that explores the weird, the morbid, and the macrabe. Whether supernatural or not, more than a podcast about horror or the paranormal, Ding Dong Darkness Time is an exploration of society, culture, sociology, psychology, and history. I joined Allison this week on Ding Dong Darkness Time to talk about, on its face, werewolves and shapeshifters. We explore, which is probably no surprise, the connection to our beliefs about shapeshifters and our fear of change while at the same time having a deep desire to change into something that can keep us and our loved ones safe. We also discuss the role that culture plays in these myths and a new era of supernatural and the creative arts that increasingly empowers women and ties back into non-European roots about the supernatural. At the end of the day, we use horror and the paranormal to explore things we don't understand things that science cannot explain, and things that we have a hard time emotionally grappling with. At the end of the day, like the title, werewolves are just one example of the shapes we take. I'm thrilled to be able to offer that discussion as a bonus episode for all of you Silver Linings Handbook listeners. Welcome back, you lovable lichens. It's Ding Dong Darkness time, and I'm Allison Dixon. We're in the thick of spooky season, Ding Dong Christmas, if you will. And with that, I have delivered you gifts in the form of episodes on vampires with Josh Bermont, zombies with Brett Talley, as well as a rousing discussion about horror writing and cinema with author Ed Kurtz. And we're feeling the irresistible pull of lore once again, one that awakens our primal energies and makes hair sprout from our knuckles and elsewhere as we run with the moonlight, tearing vulnerable things to shreds, all the moral protests from our prefrontal cortexes drowned by our guttural howls and the sounds of ripping flesh and the screams of terrified villagers. That's right. We're talking werewolves, my friends. And joining me for that discussion is Jason Blair. He's the host of the wonderfully insightful podcast, The Silver Linings Handbook, where he conducts fascinating interviews with a wide array of people, 
and actually let me on for a recent episode, which was pure enjoyment. He's also worked as a reporter, a life coach, a mental health expert, and can also be found lending his wealth of knowledge and compassion to people in the true crime community and elsewhere, making all who know him feel welcome and like a lifelong friend. So now it's my turn to do the same for him. Hello, Jason. It's great to have you over here in the Ding Dong Dugout. Aww. I want you to um, give my eulogy, could you? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That is so kind. It really is really kind. You know, you said uh, in your introduction that I let you on. I am so grateful that you came on. Let me tell you, um, you know, it's funny because we were talking about you know, our fascination with darkness, just people's fascination with darkness, because I'm always so curious about that. And I found you unbelievably insightful on the topic. But one of the things that really struck me about the episode was that it was so bright, it was so full of light, and it was so optimistic. Like I got one (laughs) note, and I got a lot of notes, a lot of notes from women, interestingly. And, and this is one that sort of fits the theme, right? And this is what a woman who wrote me about it. Thank you for that wonderful episode. I've been overwhelmed and stressed a lot. I felt very alone. You know, I look forward to your podcast every week. And I listened to Allison's episode already, and it was awesome. I love how she can find positive life lessons in anything, even horror. Aww. And that is the tenor of what I heard in terms of feedback. And it was pretty awesome to get those messages and hear that. So. Uh, well, it, it means a lot to me to hear that as well, because I like to think of myself as an optimistic person at heart, even though you might have to kind of peel back the the layers or, you know, it's like an everlasting gobstop of cynicism because I'm, I'm a Gen X kid. But, you know, deep inside, deep inside, there is that that nougaty center of of optimism and hope. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that uh, I think a lot of us that uh, that gravitate to sort of the dark side are fascinated by it because, you know, uh, we may embrace the light and we want to understand what's going on there. So to me, it makes complete sense that uh, two, two of my friends, you and Brett Talley for the prosecutor's pods are totally into horror and you're two of the most optimistic kind people I know so (laughs) you know I I turn to him to recalibrate my optimism meter a little bit you know like am (laughs) am I getting a little too jaded and and maybe he does the same with me I don't know he's great no matter what and just always provides a lift to my mood so but I wanted to ask you because Mm -hmm. in the previous episodes of this month's spook fest here I asked our guests a question to sort of get the discussion flowing. On the vampire episode, I asked Josh if he's ever consumed blood. In the episode on zombies, I asked Brett if he would line up for some Steve stew. So now I have to ask you, Jason, possibly one of the most divisive questions of all time. Dog person or cat person? Oh, that's a really tough one. But... um. I've had dogs. I've loved dogs, but I truly am a cat person. I have two tuxedo cats that are in this room right now. Um, Interestingly named Hannibal and Elizabeth, (laughs) and they're totally sweethearts. And one's obviously named after Hannibal Lecter. Nice. Hannibal Lecter Blair. And one is named, no one ever gets this, Elizabeth Bathroy. I was going to guess that. I am not lying. You would. Of course you would. I loved my dog when we had him, and we sometimes think about getting another dog 
And I love the bond of the human dog experience. There's a keen sort of awareness and understanding emotionally that a dog has about a person, but it's a lot of work. It is a ton of work. I I wanted to bring that up because a lot of what we're talking about today will be about the origins of the bond between human and canine and the way that the werewolf mythology sort of formed around that and diverged from that and why it's such a universal monster, so to speak, uh, as it seems like we're talking a lot about the Universal Studios monsters this month with the uh, zombies and the vampires and now the werewolf. But again, similar to last week when I talked to Brett about uh, zombie lore and how deep that goes, I found myself absolutely fascinated by the same depth that this folklore carries with it, with werewolves and shapeshifters in general. So we're going to talk a lot about the history of the werewolf, which is ancient, And then we will talk about sort of our own personal experience with the pop culture, the literature, the movies, the books, all of that um, surrounding it, and sort of try to derive hopefully a little bit of understanding about ourselves yet again through one of our shared monsters. And so my next question for you, Jason, is what was your first werewolf experience in terms of movies? Oh, that's a really, really, really good question. Because I think a lot of my early werewolf experiences came from, in terms of movies, can we go with television? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> can we go with television? So really my first like werewolf shape-shifting experiences in television or film were actually the television show X-Files. Oh, Do you nice. remember the monster episodes that they used to have on X-Files? Yeah, like, my favorite yeah, ones. <laughs> ones. Yeah, because some people were like the conspiracy people and some people were the monster people. I was like both, but I really did love the monster episodes. So that was sort of like my first sort of like visual, visual sort of like engagement with werewolves. But, you know, over time, I went back and I lo- watched a lot of you know, even old ones like the Wolfman from 1941. Mm. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if you uh, saw, ever saw Teen Wolf, which was like this Michael J. Fox. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> active, like, full uh-huh. memory episode or, or movie of a werewolf was Teen Wolf, 80s kids. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I actually got that on DVD when they finally came out to DV- came out on DVD. Nice. So it was way back when. And, you know, I've, I've just been a fan of the concept because in part, I've always thought like for me, and if, you know, I have my favorites, which I can definitely tell you, which may be somewhat slightly shocking to some people. <laughs> Actually, they won't be shocking at all. Um, but, but, but that whole concept of sort of like shapeshifters, you mm-hmm. know, in general who change because of some kind of like either on purpose or because of some kind of curse or affliction. Yes. You know, I I always thought that like it is a metaphor for metamorphosis mm-hmm. and transformation. And you know, in our society there's such a fear of change mm-hmm. and there's so many fears, there's fears of our animalistic natures, but there're also these powers that wish we wish we had to protect ourselves and others. And that's to me why so many of the shape-shifting characters, particularly the ones that transform into animals are so fascinating. Yes. Because yeah, they really speak to something, 
something about us that we both fear and need, if that makes sense. I love that you said that. And I love that you mentioned the duality and the way that we wish we had certain powers. I feel like there is always a a little bit of wish fulfillment with all of these uh, creatures of lore that we talk about. I'm fascinated by the lore of the werewolf and the way that it is permeated throughout indigenous cultures throughout this world since, you know, the beginning of human history and humans seem to have sort of evolved with the canine. There was always a sort of relationship between wolves and humans and such that, you know, we are dogs. Every The dogs we have today at home have evolved from those wolves. You know, that's a, that's a really good point because I think part of what the, the it's both sort of like, and you mentioned duality, I think it's part of the both positive side and the negative side of things that shape shift into animals is that, yeah, there's a part of us like, and this sort of ties into one of my favorites, which have you, have you ever seen the Halloween movie trick or treat? Oh yes. Okay. So that recently. (laughs) Okay. All right. Perfect. So, um, I, you know, trick or treat in the movie, they're like eight different stories and they do a great job of weaving them together. But one is about this principal who's a serial killer and he's stalking one of the women in the movie. And, uh, you know, you're fearful for her the entire time. He finally gets her into an alley, as I recall it. And, you know, he bites down on her or bites on her. So then it cuts to one of the other stories. And then all of a sudden you see this body in her cloak Mm -hmm. being thrown into the middle of the space with a bunch of other women. And in your head, you're like, she's dead. Yeah. Well, you actually find out it's him in her cloak. She's a werewolf. He was actually being hunted by her. And I, you know, so I think there's this, and I think this is a more recent take on werewolves because you see it in shows like uh, Netflix's show, The Order, where werewolves are the good guys, which historically they haven't been. Right. Anything that's transformed into an animal hasn't been. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so empowering that, uh, you know, the the hunter is actually being hunted. And if you haven't seen Trick or Treat, it's great because all the good guys win it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Love it. But that idea of there being a power that allows us to protect ourselves from sort of predators and things that can harm us, I think is one of the most powerful parts of shape-shifting creatures in general. And... The other side of it, right, is that I think there's a fear of our own animalistic nature that plays into this. And I think you can kind of drop it into like a couple different buckets. You And you have shapeshifters that show up in religion, culture, folklore, and literature going way back to the beginning of time. Like the Norse god Odin could transform mm-hmm. into basically he could will himself into almost any being. And even Jesus, when he took his disciples to the mountain and his face transformed and other things like that. But more recently, you've got characters like the Hulk and the Spider-Man, you know, Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk. 
you right. know, and you have these other other places like that. But if you roll back into Native American and First Nation culture in the United States and Canada, if you look at the Algonquin family of languages, they have the Wendigo. Are you familiar with the Wendigo? Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. And so it's this <laughs> evil spirit, right, that lives in the forest on the east coast of Canada and the U.S. And they're, like, depicted like these human-like characters – they supposedly have this malevolent spirit. Well, they, you know, or they still live there. I don't know for sure. I haven't fully checked it out. But, you know, they can possess other humans. And one of the curses there is you then, once you're possessed, you get this insatiable hunger and drive that leads you to cannibalize other humans. Yes. And I think that's a great metaphor for that idea of our fear of our animalistic nature. But the one other thing I was going to say about it is with that example, again, not turning into an animal, it's a relative good guy, even though it's turning us into cannibals, because the job of the Wendigo is to protect the forest. But when when you start to get to the ones like Dracula, who can turn into a bat, a wolf, I think one of the things you get is they tend to be much more negative characters. And I think a lot of that comes down to our fear of our animalistic nature, the thin line between humans and animals. I find it fascinating, too, that there is a clear historical juxtaposition between werewolves, cannibalism, and witchcraft. And we'll we'll get to that in a bit as we sort of kind of meander our way through throughout the history and kind of bringing in things from the present. But what I find interesting, too, is whereas many of our monsters like the vampire and the zombie, you know, they seem to offer an opportunity for people to express their anxieties around, you know, things like death or social structures, the changing of uh, civilization, um, the werewolf and other sort of human animal shapeshifters offers a chance to examine that relationship with nature and wild animals and wolves and human beings, as I said before, have a relationship going back thousands of years. And sometimes they are friends and sometimes they are adversaries. And wolves and humans also share a lot of the same characteristics. They travel in packs like we often tend to do. They have families like we often tend to have. Uh, we are a predator species like the wolf. We eat a lot of the same things, um, you know, not always, but often. And anybody, again, who has a dog can absolutely attest to the fact that if a dog, if you're eating something in front of a dog, they will watch you intently in the hopes that you will drop a tasty morsel for them because they want to eat what we're eating. And that is very much uh, part of that sort of bond going back millennia. But that ancient bond, that desire for these two intelligent creatures to understand and emulate one another, all but guaranteed that they would appear in some of the earliest folklore. And um, and that's one reason I wanted to ask if you were a dog or a cat person, because as much as we humans tend to love and revere cats, they, we tend to place them sort of above us. They're almost like little gods as the Egyptians revered them, ancient Egypt. And I just think that's really interesting, too, that you brought up the types of werewolves, the cursed werewolf, because history and folklore sort of do divide werewolves into three types. We have the victim, which is someone innocent who's been turned into a werewolf against their will. And 
they remain completely cognizant of the experience at the same time. The oldest piece of known literature by humans, the Epic of Gilgamesh, contains a story of a victim werewolf who is a a shepherd who is turned into a wolf by a goddess. And then there's the cursed werewolf, and that's bad people, quote unquote, forced to become wolves as punishment and where they must remain in that form until they fulfilled some sort of quest or purpose. And that features most prominently in Greek and Roman literature. And what's interesting about that is uh, Zeus plays a big role, or Jupiter, depending on if you're doing Greek or Roman, has multiple stories of people making offerings to him and them becoming uh, wolves. And I'll get a little bit into that uh, later on. But the one that I find interesting, too, is the third one, the warrior werewolf. And those are humans who can willingly shapeshift into a wolf in order to conquer their enemies in battle. And we see this a lot in fantasy stories, video games, or, you know, anybody who's ever played, say, the druid in Diablo 4, or uh, hello, that's nerd alert over here. I just beat that game as a druid and got to shapeshift into a werewolf all the time. And, you know, but the warrior is most commonly associated with stories of ancient Nordic fighters called berserkers. And if anybody's ever said the word berserk or thought of the word berserker, that's where this comes from. They made themselves resemble predatory animals in battle, and they put on the skins of wolves and bears and wild boars in the hopes of taking on that animal's characteristics. And then they would fight like those animals, extremely crazed, violent, howling and roaring, etc., And we see the term berserker used a lot in both gaming as well as true crime culture when referencing, uh, say, serial killers who use a particularly zealous form of violence like Ted Bundy at Chi Omega. And so that word, you know, that gets kind of tossed casually around these days has a very intense origin that is associated with sort of the merging of man and animal. And I, I, I found it interesting, Jason, that you mentioned in Trick or Treat about the female werewolf. That is such a contemporary spin on the lore because so much of it leading up to, I would say, probably the late 20 or, well, early to mid 20th century involved just it was mo- mostly a male affliction. Well, this is going to come as a shock to you for a guy who host a podcast <laughs> with silver linings in it. But <laughs> my favorite werewolf stories are the ones like um, the one in Trick or Treat. Yeah. The idea that women could be protected. They can protect themselves. Yes. They don't need help to be protected. They're not always going to be victims. Or even like in The Order in Netflix, where actually the Order of St. Christopher the um, good guys are the werewolves and the bad ones are the ones that look like the rest of us. Oh, interesting. And there's something to me that's so powerful about the idea across, you know, shapeshifters, superheroes, villains of the idea that these things that we've demonized, whether it's witches Mm -hmm. or werewolves or it's zombies, these things that we've demonized, there could be a whole nother story. Yes. I don't know if you've ever read Anne Rice's Memnock Mim- the Devil. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like this alternative story to what the devil really was, and he was just really trying to help out, mm-hmm. you know, 
with <laughs> with God who was on this trip, but he's actually trying to help out um, humankind. And I like that alternative version of things. Mm-hmm. And there's this great X-Files episode with zombies. They do the zombie episode. And Mulder, Fox Mulder, who's like the lead lead agent with his partner, Dana Scully, well, they're both lead agents on the X-Files, which you know investigates paranormal things. But at the end of the episode, Mulder says something like, you know, what if the zombies just really want to party and dance afterwards? And in the last scene, after they walk away and the doors close, all the zombies wake back up and they start holding this great party and dance. (laughs) And I think, I think being able to look at these things, these things that we consider, you know, horror really is outlets for something that's very healthy in us. That's our shadow. It's something we suppress and or or long for, and I think that's a very powerful powerful interpretation. But I completely agree with you on your your three categories of werewolves, and you know, there's a similar sort of category system within the the broader array of shape shifting. But what we're seeing right now, I think, is a, a evolution in our thinking about some of these things, right? We've had to. So much of the 20th century's pop culture was dominated by white male voices. And it it had that same effect of you know creating these same dichotomies. And for instance, uh, werewolves being traditionally male, that was often made the case because a lot of storytellers eventually found out that they just preferred to have women in the the sort of damsel role and the victim role and the endangered role uh, as sort of the uh, the prey for the werewolf. And now, you know, we have all this intersectionality happening in our storytelling, in our way of looking at the world and understanding that multiple personalities, multiple populations are now learning that we are living a lot. We have to live alongside each other, but we also have a lot in common as humans. And there is a Mm -hmm. shared human experience and it isn't just being told from one point of view anymore. And I think that's absolutely beautiful that you mentioned that because I think it shows a hunger to break from these traditions that actually have been rooted in so much oppression. Yep. And I love seeing the sort of liberation of our monsters from those chains and, and, and meant to explore human connectedness and harmony. And, you know, that doesn't mean make your vampires and werewolves and zombies all good guys. It just means that it isn't just about team A against team B. Well, and, and also some of it is admitting that maybe some of your vampires and your werewolves and your other shapeshifters are are actually good guys, and some of the people who look like us mm-hmm. are not good guys. And I I think you know to your point about sort of like the white white male dominated view. If you go back into history, like you were talking about, and you look at something, and you made that point about you know werewolves and wolves um connect us to nature well one of the things that's also mm-hmm. true about humans and wolves that they share in common that you don't always see in the animal kingdom is their willingness to sacrifice themselves for others so when you go into some of the shape shifting in the first nations it's very much about sacrificing 
to protect mm-hmm. um, themselves from others. I think the evolution in the sort of European view of it, this idea that I'm out of control and I'm not an animal has a lot to do with the way that European culture developed around needing to control things, needing to be in charge, yes. which wasn't necessarily true in a lot of other cultures. I, you know, I'd throw in Norse culture, I'd throw in First Nation culture, where you see some of these same kinds of myths and folklore. It plays a very different mm-hmm. role. And it's neat to see that we're embracing a little bit of that and creating something new. Yes. I loved looking back at the early origins. I, I mentioned the Epic of Gilgamesh and I, you know, and hop, hopping a little further ahead into, you know, ancient Greece. And we're talking about, say, Pliny the Elder, who was a famed uh, Greek historian, perhaps best known for his death in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii, um, an event I would love to cover on this show at some point. And he tells several stories of lycanthropy in many of his histories. He wrote the Naturalis Historia, which um, was a a book that associated cannibalism with wolf-like creatures. And then you hop over into 8 CE to Ovid and Metamorphosis, telling the story about the god Zeus and a king named Lycaon, who was practicing cannibalism and his sacrifices to Zeus. And so Zeus decides he's going to go down and investigate. But Lycaon, the king, refused to believe that Zeus was who he said he was. He was taking on a human form. And so he offers him up some of this human flesh, upon which Zeus became disgusted by the offering and he destroyed Lycaon's house in a rage. And Lycaon then fled uh, into the fields in terror and anger and began slaughtering his own flock in a fury. Mm. And from there, the transformation into a wolf-like creature begins, thus establishing the etymological roots of lycanthropy, uh, which is also related to lykos uh, in Greek, meaning wolf, and anthropos, man. Like lycanthrope, wolfman or lycanthropy, wolfman syndrome. Um, and that's just one of the words, right? Because werewolf comes from possibly, it's a little muddled, possibly the old German uh, or the Nordic language. And that's also just basically comes down to, again, wolfman. But it's interesting because Greek and Roman histories, like there's so many of them that show that men have been transformed into wolves during sacrifices to Zeus since that story I just told. But there is that caveat that if they abstain from tasting human flesh while being wolves, that they could be restored to human form nine years later. But if they don't abstain, they remain wolves forever. So this is that cursed wolf thing that I was talking about earlier, where that's the earliest example of that. And I find it interesting too that uh you know Pliny the Elder tells all these other stories where he mentions in Arcadia. Arcadia was the name of sort of the untouched wilderness, the beautiful unspoiled land, sort of like the Garden of Eden as maybe we think of it in in our culture. And in that uh in Arcadia once a year a man would be chosen by lot from a certain clan. And then that chosen man would be escorted into a marsh area where he would hang his clothes up and then swim across a marsh and transform into a wolf. And he would join a wolf pack for nine years. I don't know the significance of the nine years. 
I didn't dig that deep, but I, I'm now suddenly very curious about that. Um, and he would say that if during these nine years he refra- refrained from tasting human flesh, then he would return to the same marsh, recover his previous human form, and then he would gain nine years in his life. So it's it, you're you're sort of making these deals where you're like trading something, like giving up a piece of your humanity in exchange for immortality um, or a little bit more life. And that follows throughout uh, so much of the lore and the literature, this uh, Faustian deal, as uh, it's often referred to, um, you know, make a deal. Yeah. And if you think about the way that we view cannibalism, a lot of our views around cannibalism, you know, cannibalism is something that we as humans don't really understand. Um, and we don't, we don't really get where it comes from. We don't, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around it. So we've built a lot of myths around it. And one of those myths is that, you know, cannibals eat human flesh to live longer and to have power and all these different things. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence, this concept of cannibalism and werewolves, uh, came together. You were making the point before that wolves and humans are a lot alike. And mm-hmm. we were talking about that idea of this fear. Well, that fear of our animalistic nature, you know, we use words like reptilian brain and other things like that. It's really a fear of ourselves, I think. It's a deeper rooted fear of what we might be cursed with, what we might do to survive or thrive or live longer. And you can see that thread uh, between cannibalism and werewolves throughout history. A lot of folks don't know. I think it was in the 14th and 15th century in Switzerland. The, you know, literally there were cannibal werewolf trials, just like the Salem witch trials. Yes. Yes. We were going to talk about that. You're absolutely right. And I did not know. Um, do you remember when uh, Brett and Alice covered the Salem witch trials mm-hmm. and they talked about the Malleus Maleficarum oh, yeah. and all that? Um, that's the sort of legal and theological text that they used back during uh, those witch trials by the Inquisition and everything during the Middle Ages in Europe to say this is how we torture people this is how we execute people uh to get them to admit that they are witches or werewolves or whatnot i had no idea jason that there were werewolves mixed Mm -hmm. in with the witchcraft i had that hole in my knowledge and i couldn't believe it. It, it it clicked into place today and i said well of course that's you know of course there would be those charges because do you know the thing that happened in the Middle Ages that that brought that sensibility from this sort of primal nature, human, you know, bonding with the wild and the fear of that primal, you know, instinct that, you know, wolves say exhibit used to be a very just a deeply carnal human thing. And then we saw the rise of and this is just a historical note here, not a value judgment. Uh, We saw the rise of Christianity in the Middle Ages through this period. And with that came these sort of sets of prescribed behaviors that we needed to put around everything and everything that was Greek or Roman or, you know, Nordic or whatnot was placed into this category of paganism. And then now we have this new system and we have the church that is setting these new roles and examples. And so... It used to be considered heretical that we would even consider that a man could turn into a wolf 
you know, that was the provenance of God. Only God could make that change. And so we don't even recognize that it's even capable for a man to turn into a wolf. That is heresy. However, later on, it became heresy to deny that this was possible because we we had to find the werewolves. We had to find the witches and persecute yes. them. So, well, and that's, you know, to your point about sort of like the, you know, the Christian transformation in general, I think that I think you're you're really striking on what I would view is kind of a key point, like that providence of God, that God's providence to do X, Y, or Z or do these things, mm-hmm. right? That we as humans need to change. We have to change to survive, to grow. We have to change. We also fear change. Yes. And people in authority fear that change in us. And in animals, for example, like the word metamorphosis, period, is really, it's truly just about uh, transformation. You know, it's a biological process. Animals sort of go from birth to hatching and, and changing. And when you see a lot of animals take something like a butterfly that goes from a, a worm to a butterfly, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially what looks like a worm to a larva to a butterfly. That is a dramatic change. And that's a kind of change or transformation I think humans are very, very afraid of yes. individually. But I think more broadly in society, because it goes back to that point about control, right? That ultimately, if you do transform, I hate to bring this back because I sometimes view, and I'm not poking at Christianity in general, but institutions right. in general are often threatened by the idea that people will have dramatic transformations. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to hunt those things. We got to bring them down. It brings me back to this story in high school. I'll never forget with uh, this, like m- one of my best friends, her name was Lynn. Lynn, if you're out there, <laughs> you are one of my best friends. Um, and yeah, and she went off to the military and, um, after we went to school, which was totally a surprise to everybody that she would have gone into the military. She was also going to college at the same time, but she went off to, um, you know, did the ROTC thing and then eventually went to the military. And I remember she came out of boot camp like a year later and I was like, who is this trim fit person that could kick my butt? Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> she seemed so much more confident because she, I'd always been shy. And those were all good things, but there's also something scary to me about that. And mm-hmm. I'm willing to admit it because I felt the dynamic change and I was a little bit scared, right? Right. Because our whole dynamic of me being the one that was helpful, me being the one that was kind of more protective was eliminated. And it was frightening to me to see that kind of transformation. And I've always thought about that when it comes to characters that really that really shift, mm-hmm. we symbolize that idea of transformation as sort of a dual nature of humanity, right? And that this idea that there's this beast out there which re- uh, which represents the struggle between, you know, like the civilized rational side and our instinctual side, there's some truth to that, but I think some of it is really about just our fear that things are going to change 
and there's going to be something scary outside the door. Yes. And that scary thing may be just that my wife got a job. Right. Right. It, it may not be all that big, but to some guys, it, their wives getting a job and being able to like live on their own potentially is as scary as a werewolf. I think you're so right. These monsters that we create that we use as vehicles for storytelling, you know, we tend to think nowadays, especially because I think we're all a little jaded. How many zombie movies are there? How many vampire things are there? How many werewolf things are there? And we start to feel like we're just being fed the same thing and it doesn't have that depth. But when you step back from it and you realize that this is a symbol tapping into something is trying, we are trying to explain the chaos of our world through these creatures and try to understand it in some way. And what I found so fascinating when I dove back into this was back, say, during the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, you know, as we're going through, you know, all these uh, inquisitions, as we're going through these witch hunts, and we are putting people on trial for suspected witchcraft and cannibalism and werewolf behavior. Um, I found it really interesting that even during the Black Death of the 1400s, the plagues of the Middle Ages, the bubonic plagues, all that, we were also sort of naming groups that were we felt were to blame for this horrible change. Because you talk about fear of change, and when change happens and we don't like it, we have to point the finger at somebody and say, you did this. And of course, during the Black Death, we you know, we saw a huge rise in anti-Semitism. We saw a huge rise in all sorts of uh, marginalized populations being blamed for when that. When in reality, they just needed more cats. And exactly. I mean, the Polish had cats and the Black Death barely hit them. So, you know, it is, it is so true. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because the plague actually caused an even bigger rise in the wolf populations because there were fewer people. For people who don't know, back in the, by the 14th, end of the 14th century, upwards of 75% of the global population had died. And I don't mean all at once. I just mean over that 100-year period, we're talking parts of Europe that were almost completely wiped out by this. And so, that's how decimated the human race was by the end of the 14th century. It was, by and large, the worst time to ever be alive. Not only that, we had volcanic eruption that had caused a mini ice age. And so people were dying of famine. And then you have these wolf populations exploding everywhere and killing what little livestock people had. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up that I find so interesting about how our attitudes around wolves changed. So prior to the rise of human agriculture and a livestock society, we were hunter-gatherers. And when we were hunter-gatherers, we were more one with the wolf. We were more harmonious with the wolf. You talk about, uh, Jason, the ind indigenous cultures, uh, First America's cultures, and their lore around the wolf being a little more of a cooperative and, and harmonious thing. In Europe, as the wolves were attacking our sheep, literally creating that metaphor that we all love to use to this day, we maligned the wolf. The wolf became the enemy of us. It was decimating our, our economy because the sheep was the lifeblood. 
And so if the if the sheep were being killed, in addition to all this disease and warfare and mayhem that are killing people left and right, we have these damn wolves. And so they became the enemy. And then what happened after that time period, around the 1600s, Europeans start coming over to the Americas, we see a huge clash of culture and lore. And the Americas were filled with wolves, just like over in Europe. And so that afforded us the opportunity to use that, their cultural fear of the wolf and to see that the natives had embraced the wolf. And that sort of fueled that fire that led to the subjugation of the indigenous people it largely that that disagreement over the wolf is incredible that one little thing it almost makes me wonder like if we'd agreed if we'd ever agreed on the wolf culturally Let's think about Aesop's fable and the wolf and the shepherd right you know the wolf prowling around the flock of sheep for a long time you know the shepherd worrying trying to prevent the wolf from carrying off a lamb and you know like finally the shepherd sees the wolf Mm -hmm. right to care garden of eden moment and forgets about how wicked the wolf is and then ultimately you know a wolf is gonna wolf and he, he takes the the lamb away but i think it's a part of a broader history that we use things like the wolf or whatever to scare to scare people like i think of in african-american culture you know still down if you go to where my dad's family is from um you know you've got shape-shifting spirits that can become animals like cats or owls and stories of stuff like that that were used to spy on african-american families or cause harm where did that come from that came from slaveholders who were utilizing that And I think something very, very similar happened in Europe around things like wolves. Mm -hmm. Not only is it a real genuine fear that exists, but then that fear is leveraged for control. And and that's where I think when we get to our buddy Elizabeth Bathroy, I think we get a great example of example of that. And it's this, you know, yet another witch hunt, right? These legitimate fears that exist get turned into witch hunts or tools to manipulate people. And that's one thing I'll say, Allison, that's really cool about monsters in general Mm -hmm. is that our use of monsters over the last hundreds or so years has flipped the script on so many of these things that were used to articulate supernatural punishment or to suggest someone was damned or going away. Now they're in my video games. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I, I, I've loved sort of delving into all of this lore this month, just specifically for that reason, because now when I, you know, pick up a video game and uh, the zombie video game, I might reflect back on uh, so many of the things that zombies have represented in our culture and in cultures uh, throughout the world. And then also with the werewolf, I'm hailing back to the vintage of most vintage uh, werewolf video games, Altered Beast. I was a kid, uh, was one of my favorites uh, growing up. But I, I think about how, you know, 
we've used the werewolf to really try to dig down into parts of human nature that we just do not quite understand and and how that has morphed with our growing understanding of I would say the world. I would I would I would put a flip on that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that it's parts of human nature that we don't understand. We understand it. We just don't want to face the reality. Yes. Yes. You know, I, I heard you and Brett talking in the last episode and you were talking about the zombie apocalypse and, you know, would Brett, what was the question? It was, would Brett uh, practice cannibalism in yeah. the survival situation? Yeah. Like Brett is a very honest and open guy and he's willing to admit reality, but that is a reality most people don't want to admit. Right. At the end of the day, we would hunt like a pack of wolves. We would. We would. <laughs> we and, and it would not take much, I don't think, to make us cast aside the the artifice that we've constructed like around a, ourselves, you know, this proper... A second Trump presidency. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I am leaving that in there. I love that you said that. Thank you, sir. Thank you for putting voice to my own thoughts. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I loved watching, too, the the way the werewolf in the middle ages sort of, you know, the, what we established during the middle ages set the scene for so much of the things that we sort of take for granted now. And I, and I kind of want to bring in a true crime element now because I found this absolutely fascinating during my research. So this was all during the sort of the werewolf trials that were going on uh, that peaked in the late 17th century. So we're starting to wind this down. This is about the time when I think a lot of the the people in power were like, we need to knock this off. Um, And there was a man, a German man named Peter Strube, and he was an accused killer who was believed to take on the shape of a werewolf in order to kill his victims without being caught. And here's the interesting thing about how they came around to believing this. Hunters initially thought they were tracking a wolf who'd been slaughtering, you know, men, women and children and livestock around the community. And so they they assumed it was an animal. And so when they were tracking this wolf, they lost track of it, but they found Peter, who was a farmer, wandering around those same woods. And for whatever reason, they just decided to assume that Peter had just changed back into his human form, that he was the wolf. Okay. So they put I him... I feel bad for Peter. Peter, Peter was just in the wrong place uh, at the wrong time, it sounds like. But who knows, right? Because... Well, and I'll I'll just finish the story here. He was put through brutal torture, of course, whereupon he admitted under that torture to killing 14 children, two pregnant women, as well as his own son. He also admitted... Well, then, I mean, if he admitted it... (laughs) And he also admitted to cannibalism and having an affair with a quote-unquote she-devil. His daughter and that mistress were also found guilty as accessories, and they were all executed on October 31st, 1589. Um, Wow. Yeah. And after they dismembered and burned his body, they kept his Mm. head and mounted it on a pike above a statue of a wolf. And that story became a huge sensation in Great Britain uh, and other places because there was a book written about it. And it sort of reinvigorated interest in werewolves after people had been sort of taking a breather. And what we now know, historians looking back at this, show that these chronicles are actually people coming to grips with the existence of serial killers. 
rather than anything supernatural. They just didn't have the vocabulary. And in fact, we didn't get the vocabulary or the understanding of serial killers until the mid 20th century, really. But we like to think that in the 20th century, that the serial killer was this new thing that we had discovered when in fact, it's very likely they've always been among us. We just didn't know what they were or what it was or where we were attributing it to uh, supernatural um, elements. And so, again, the werewolf tied into serial killers. It makes perfect sense because it ties back to that same idea of us needing to use these characters, use these spirits, use these these different things, whether it's the you know the people in the north and Game of Thrones mm-hmm. or it's it's I- any of these different elements to try and explain either parts of ourselves or parts of the world yeah. that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. I think there is a innate human need to understand the world around us. And when we can't understand the world around us, and there will always be parts that we can't understand, we have this tendency, I think, Mm -hmm. to create stories. Sometimes, you know, stories can be powerful. They can be good. They can heal people. They can help people. They can also be dangerous. You know, we Mm -hmm. see that in the Holocaust. We see that in the Elders of Zion. We see that in all sorts of examples throughout time. And I think we we create these stories sometimes to, you know, you create the boogeyman to scare kids into going to sleep. You create all sorts of different things, you know. And in in African-American culture, there's – you know, uh, there's the boo hag, which is from the Gullah American folklore, and it, you know, sucks your breath or energy when people are asleep. Well, you know, it was a way to get to the slaves to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. The And we create these stories, and they can either be very good and powerful, or they can be very harmful. So this idea that you're getting at, Allison, that we can go back and take a look at these stories, and we can learn not just you know, like to the point about serial killers, we can learn a lot about ourselves and what we do when we try to fill the unknown, when we try to write the fan fiction of the unknown. (laughs) Ooh, ooh, I like that line, writing the fan fiction of the unknown. That's great. I think you're so right. And I think what we find and what I have found um, time and time again, as I delve into history to learn a little something else about a, a person or an event that happened, you know, centuries ago is the fact that we haven't changed a whole lot um, as a species. There, There is a lot that we think, you know, we see some brutalities today and we see some horrible things happening today. Um, and we think this is the, the product of a new generation, that it wasn't like this before, that the people that came before us were always better than we are now or had a deeper understanding of something that we've now lost. And there could be a, a bit of that, you know, because we do shed things as we as we go along and we have to relearn things. But, you know, as far as human nature is concerned, you know, this idea that now we're just newly selfish or newly um, binary or newly, you know, backwards in our thinking in some way, um, it, it's more like the further back you look, the more you see, no, I think they were trying to make the same discoveries then that we're trying to now. And maybe we've gained Mm. more understanding about certain things. 
but this leads me to my next question. And I'm going to lead up to that because this is all going to tie in. I promise. Um, so, so far, so good. <laughs> so and thank you. So in the in the 18th century and beyond, you know, where we've gotten through the Middle Ages. And again, I'm very much Cliff's noting this whole situation here because we don't have five hours. But by the late 18th century and after that, both the the idea of a werewolf is both magical transformation and a mental illness and when in which one believes they've been transformed into an animal that's called lycomania and is an actual disorder recognized to this day we started thinking more scientifically we're talking about the birth of the industrial age we are probably more wizards at this point in history than we've ever been sense in many ways. We are discovering electricity. We are inventing the telegram, the telephone. We are inventing, you know, horrifying chemicals to use in warfare. We are inventing bombs. We're inventing early versions of Wi-Fi, thanks to Hedy Lamar, because of torpedoes and wireless transmissions. You know, we're learning so many magical, amazing things. The world has become this this thing that we've like tapped into some deep understanding. And with that comes this desire to understand what made people think werewolves were an actual thing, like there was a supernatural werewolf. And so came these sort of uh, medical explanations. We have, again, we mentioned porphyria in the vampire episode. It's going to get another mention here. It's a it's a disease that um, causes a lot of symptoms that that resemble what we think of as vampirism or werewolf uh, or lycanthropy. Um, we have sensitivity to sunlight, hyperpigmentation, red or reddish brown teeth. Um, you know, all these this these sort of like irrational behaviors and things like that. Um, we would b- blame yet again ergot poisoning that's that fungus that makes everybody go crazy that has been blamed for everything from the dancing plagues of you know the 1500s to you know the Salem witch trials all of which is wrong but we keep bringing up ergot as a means to try to understand you know or or to blame some substance or some object as the cause for this unbridled homicidal lust that human beings have exhibited over our you know entire history. But yet again, you know, that doesn't hold up. The closer you look at a theory like that, the more you find that it's mostly empty. And so others have pointed out things like hypertrichosis, which is um, you might have seen pictures of people like this where their entire body is covered in hair, you know, their Mm -hmm. face and everything. It is a very, very rare hereditary condition that causes that kind of excessive hair growth. Um, But that's also not possible because it's such a rare disease that people back then wouldn't have seen it on a large enough scale to cause this sort of like cultural belief in werewolves. And then rabies, that's another one that's been kind of pulled out as a possible belief. And so I just want to throw this out there as we look at all these things like medical diagnoses to explain these wild behaviors of our ancestors and these crazy beliefs that they had. Um, I believe it's important to understand that the monsters we create, we shouldn't be trying so hard to explain them away with rational explanations. Like this is a disease or they ate a, a fungus that made them go crazy because I think it's important to maintain and understand that the role of human imagination 
and the tales we weave is so important. Oh, I think that's a great, great, great point. You made me think of like as a child and, you know, everyone denies it now, but like that as a child, when you imagine that you're the bird or Mm -hmm. an insect or whatever it is, there's something about the fantasy that leads to so much innovation. Yeah. That human creativity, that human spark to sort of come up with these, these stories, these legends is kind of a It's a beautiful thing. And on the same token, though, I guess it is also kind of important to sort of throttle it a little bit because you have to create an anchor for that imagination just so that we don't find ourselves, say, accusing people with epilepsy of being demonically possessed, you know, so there is a there is a line there of where we can say, oh, we don't have to be afraid of this any of this thing anymore, because now we know what's causing it. But I can tell you something about the science behind those things. That's a great example with epilepsy and demonic possession. But part of the reason why we have so much historical, before we knew what epilepsy was, Mm -hmm. we have so much historical uh, information about it is because people are right. Tons of stuff down about these demonic possessions. And so while we may not necessarily want to make it something negative, let's say, But there's a value in creating stories around these Mm -hmm. things that we don't understand. Yes. You know, they don't have to be malevolent, but that someday in the future, as things progress, someone is going to figure out something related to this that moves the world forward. And if those stories aren't told, there isn't the same opportunity to to grow. That is so true. I've been kind of making this, these... um, these statements a little bit on the internet about um, the sort of the death of the humanities and, you know, leading to the, the sort of uh, a death of humanity if we're not careful, because now that we have sort of streamlined a lot of uh, education in, in this country, especially toward uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering and math, um, you know, education, learning these things so that we can go out and get a job one day um, and become, you know, computer engineers and all these other, you know, lofty things that obviously is very much in demand, but we're not leaving enough room for reading about these, uh, these stories and this, these human experiences and things like understanding what fascism looks like, um, understanding our histories so that we don't repeat them. And, you know, we're leaving a lot of that, uh, that education in the dust in favor of these sort of hardline understandings of, you know, the way Mm. the world works, we're breaking it down into all these algorithms. Chat GPT is an amazing metaphor for this. Yes. Let me just throw this out. So you've got this giant language model that sucks in all this data from the internet from books that have been written and all of this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it produces, it produces answers for us. And everyone talks about how artificial intelligence like chat GPT is going to replace writers. It's going to replace all sorts of things like that. Well, what happens when there are not people creating original knowledge? It starts to break and people call this the knowledge age because I'm so on board with this, but I actually think there's a knowledge desert right now mm-hmm. because we're so focused on the technical, practical movement of science. Right. Right. 
and not the deeper, richer things that it's actually based on. Yes. Right? Yes. I I just don't think we would be able, you know, we're building upon something and advancing upon something, but we're making the focus so narrow on the sciences Mm -hmm. and mathematics and engineering that we're weakening the foundation that all of those things are built on. You know, you know, the old joke, right? That, that sociologists standing somewhere and the psychologist says that, you know, sociology is just applied psychology. And then there's a biologist and the biologist says, you know, psychology is just applied biology. Ah. And then, and then there's a, um, you know, a chemist who says, well, biology is just applied chemistry and a physicist who says that, well, you know, like chemistry is just applied physics. And finally a mathematician who says it's all math, but the reality is it's all the knowledge that we have connected, Mm -hmm. collected and passed on. None of those things from sociology to, uh, calculus, calculus, (laughs) right? Exactly. Exist without literature and art. Mm-hmm. And those things are the actual foundation to all of those things. And, you know, what I would tell you scientists out there who are poo-pooing my point is who's going to tell your story? Mm-hmm. Who's going to pass your information on? Who's going to tell uh, the lessons, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I want I want people to go to college, if they're going to college, to remember to take some literature and philosophy and psychology and history for the love of God. You know, people complain about these prerequisites a lot of times in education. Uh, and often these are the, the the foundational things that you need. And it worries me right now. We're looking at a world that is um, in, in some intense conflict right now, to put it very mildly. Yeah. You know, what's what's happening in the Middle East right now, for instance, a massive conflagration that's been building for 70 plus years and has been having fires off and on throughout all of that. But what we're seeing is people come, new people coming into the understanding or trying to come into un- the understanding of what is happening right now with this conflict, say, in Israel and Palestine. And they lack completely that historical context of right. both sides. And you want to ask them, do you know why Israel was established? Do you know what uh, the history of Palestine is in this conflict between the two? Do you even have that basic foundation of understanding? And they often do not seem to have that knowledge. So I just think we're we're living in that sort of uh proof that you know we are forgetting a lot of these stories and and I know that this is a bit of a tangent we got off on but I I feel like it applies to why what we're talking about here just about these sort of what we think of like oh Jesus it's just teen wolf will you just stop being so serious about it and it's like no because that's just a fun way of of looking at something that has a lot more implications attached to it and I want to go deeper every single time and like find that sort of bedrock. Once you've stopped telling stories and passing on stories, we have nothing and we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. The werewolf is so about, I think, 
that passing of stories, that folklore that, you know, our European ancestors have intermingled it with a lot of fear and insecurity. But then we have the, you know, if we look at the Native American view and see something a lot, this more harmonious thing, protective thing, and we can sort of bridge these things together because absolutely there are anxieties and insecurities these cultures is like in native culture as well that they express in other ways and so it's like these are all human emotions we're dealing with here and um and so i think it's it's fun to pick that apart can i give us a pat on the back for progress though oh absolutely because yeah you know to many of the points that you're making i think part of this transformation around monsters werewolves shapeshifters in general really has to do to some extent, how we have gained a better understanding of things like mental health conditions Mm -hmm. and other topics and how we become more transparent in society about risks on things like climate change or, you know, forests or whatever it is, right? Right. That by dropping those stigmas and having those conversations, we can now have a John area and Brand Stark that where their dire wolves give them their strength and transform them. We can have those dancing zombies and the X-Men who are like your kids who may have been outcasts or outside of the popular club. Mm -hmm. And you can have people like Rogue from the X-Men who is able to take on people's qualities and characteristics who's like a good guy and Lori from trick or treat who's able to protect herself yes that we're able to now say that like some of our differences can be powerful and can be good and i'm not always an optimist but i i will give us some points for what the transformation of the way that we look at some of these monsters says about our willingness to admit that some of the things that we think are monsters aren't really. I think that's a beautiful uh, insight to make. I also want to mention, too, that I find it really interesting as we're talking about, you know, the use of of werewolves in our our stories and in our uh, own personal mythologies and our own uh, cultures is, you know, we even see life imitating art because, you know, back in uh, after World War One, uh, there were groups of German soldiers who uh, refused to disband afterward. And they joined together calling themselves Verwolf, you know, W-E-H-R-W-O-L-F. And this group would become the elite Nazi recruiting force in World War Two. And they would borrow from old werewolf myths to make their propaganda. And Hitler himself also fancied himself as something of a werewolf. So that mythology... Uh, he had the wolf's lair. Yes. Was his, yeah, was yeah. his base. And so you can often see, too, where if you are aware of this kind of... Uh, all these sort of cultural threads that run through all these stories, then it gives you a lesson about, you know, even the the evils of people and trying to, you know, be on the lookout for a certain symbology... Uh, as of right now, you know, I mean, you're you're uh, you're fully immersed in the Delphi case with all this Odinist um, stuff being tossed around and and whatnot. Oh, don't I, get me started. <laughs> I know. I don't. I was going to. You want a real tangent? 
<laughs> no kidding. I did find myself thinking about that a little bit as I was putting this outline together and I was seeing all these sort of Nordic things and, and whatnot. I'm like, oh, here we go. I have spent more time defending heathens over the last two weeks than I ever would have thought in my entire <laughs> lifetime. Oh, my God. Well, thank you, because I consider myself one on a, in a casual basis. <laughs> Good. Well, I got your back, buddy. <laughs> appreciate it. Um, So I want to ask you then, as we point our way toward our conclusion here, but we talked about Teen Wolf and, you know, sort of the first, our first werewolf experience. But what about some of the more modern uh, looks at it? You know, like, uh, for instance, I I have to bring up Harry Potter. It's controversial now. I, you know, uh, I, I don't talk a lot about Harry Potter these days, but the Professor Lupin character um, in mm. that story, I think that's a character that will resonate with a lot of our younger up to more millennial audience members as an interesting use of sort of the werewolf who is sort of a societal outcast um, who is diseased in some way and trying to hide it uh that sort of disheveled way a lot of people say that he was sort of like a way to represent the hiv aids crisis because you know he would have this um this taboo sort of disease that he he had to kind of like pretend he didn't have a lot of people uh mention also twilight um in the same breath because it's one of the more famous uh examples of modern age um although that story misappropriates a lot of Native American lore, some would definitely say. Moments, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is like, I think younger people, when they think of werewolves, they're probably thinking immediately of Professor Lupin or Jacob from Twilight. Um, but we also have like Eddie Munster, you know, Dark Shadows. Mm. And then we mm. have like ni- the year of 1981, man. I don't know what happened in 1981. But <laughs> the Howling? Yeah, The Howling and American <laughs> Werewolf in London. You know, right? those two both, movies. Yes. I wonder what yeah. it was about that year. Well, the 1980s were, in my mind, like a heyday for horror. I do not know what was happening. Something happened in the 1990s where it all got broke. Maybe too much peace and prosperity. But yeah. <laughs> the yeah, 1980s yeah, yeah. were quite a decade for, you know, because you also had, you had Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox. You had like The Howling then. Mm-hmm. The series also, in addition to the to the. To the movie oh, that's right. I forgot Howling. about this series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, and like you said, American, you know, Werewolf in London, which is like a great horror comedy. I mean, it was groundbreaking in terms of its special effects, too. And all that dark humor was super powerful. It was really cool, too, to see sort of how a lot of those things were picked up after, you know, they were laid down by, you mentioned the Wolfman. And then we have the Werewolf of London, uh, the original one, because we talked about the American Werewolf in London, which was more like a, a satire spoof comedy, but it sort of combined Werewolf of London with an American in Paris kind of dynamic. But the Werewolf of London was really the first on screen depiction of a bite transferring the sort of quote unquote disease of werewolf uh, into somebody. And what's interesting in that is that East Asia was the source of the curse this time. Uh, And I think it being that this was in the 1930s, that, you know, we start to see sort of the geopolitical situations of the time sort of being again represented. But, you know, it also showed sort of a representation of things like 
uh, repressed homosexuality, a warning against the advancement of science, a fear of disease, etc., Um, And that year, again, was huge because it came out at the same time as Bela Lugosi's Mark of the Vampire and Boris Karloff's The Bride of Frankenstein. The movies were lit that year, (laughs) which I found so cool. And but Universal Studios, who funded all these movies, The Werewolf of London didn't stick out. It was kind of a flop. It couldn't stand up to the vampire and the Frankenstein. And so uh, Universal came back a few years later in 1941 and gave us the Wolfman, which, you know, we were all talking about. And, you know, that one, again, showed a lot of the similarities of sort of reflecting the anxieties of the time. And we got 40 years of werewolf movies just like it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that's the problem, you know, that is like, (laughs) oh, this hit once. We're going to just do it over and over and over again. For everyone who thinks like movie theaters are just repeating the same thing over and over again, this is not new. (laughs) No, no. Remakes of remakes were already happening in the silent movie era. Right. So, you know, when people say, oh, today they nothing's original. Now we'll say, yeah, we have a lot of sequels now, but so many of the movies that we have that we take for granted today were made first in the golden age and the silent era. I also found too, going back and looking at some of these, uh, these old movies was very similar to looking at the old vampire movies or the old zombie movies and seeing how a lot of times they were in, in the 30, 20s, 30s and 40s, they were using these movies to deal with sort of the other you know that that mm. is kind of what the zombie represented in early zombie movies sort of mm-hmm. this this fear of of people coming into our country there's always a bit of yep. xenophobia well, running you through know, all this you know so. what the thread that runs through a lot of these things are it's this concept and i think we need to get over ourselves when it comes to this it's this concept that things like werewolves zombies Etc. represent some kind of moral dis- d- decay, right? Right. It's like our struggle to control our wild or the evil inside of us, you know. And there's definitely this notion there of the struggle between good and evil in us, but this idea that the other is something that can't control its raw emotions, whether they're like violent, destructive, or mm-hmm. sexual, is something that I think. This is what I love about millennials, the younger millennials. I love about Gen Y. They are throwing that out the window and they're embracing the other and are no longer making other equal moral decline. Yes. Yeah. I I love that so much. And it's actually, um, it's forced me as a storyteller to think outside the box in terms of how I'm presenting characters and why I think I love moral ambiguity a lot in my characters and in the stories that I tell or finding ways to make the unsympathetic sympathetic um, because I feel that saying that we don't have some means to relate to bad or evil things is is kind of a form of hypocrisy and knowing that we have the potential for good or evil as a species and not going, oh, we are born evil or you're born good or or whatnot. And I love as a psychology nerd, the study of 
the work of Philip Zimbardo, um, uh, uh, the psychologist who was behind the Stanford prison experiment, uh, which was an infamous uh, study back in the 1970s that went horribly awry. Um, And uh, but he has, you know, a lot of his later work talks about how we are equally capable of being hero and villain in the same lifetime in the same instance almost in the same breath we're constantly making trade-offs and i think to your point allison we have to let this idea of we're either good people or bad people go because you know you you know from my personal story i i'm willing to bet most people who know me Mm -hmm. think i'm a good person a yeah. lot of people who don't know me think I'm a bad person. Right. And so, you know, I had this situation today. You'll love this. So I gave a $250 donation to someone on nice. GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden on Twitter, there's screenshots of my donation up there and then attacks on me. And they're saying I'm trying to get attention or something like oh that. Oh, my I God. Pri- I, yeah, I privately did it. There yeah. will always be people who view me as a bad guy. Yeah. Who may have done something good, but he did it for a real bad reason. And there are people who view me as good person who made some bad mistakes. And I yeah. think the vast majority of us are really good people. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we're not all serial killers. There most of us are good people who just sometimes do bad things, sometimes in the exact same moment. We fall right. short. And 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 that's okay because at the end of the day, there's a part of me that's human. There's a part of me that's a werewolf. The thing that I'll ultimately tell you is, I, the one thing I'm sure of, I'm a shapeshifter because life is about change and it's about shifting your shape. And it's about growing and persevering through things. And sometimes good things happen, sometimes bad. But you know, this idea of transformation to me is just growth. Yeah. That's all it is. And I can't imagine a better sentiment <laughs> to wrap this up on, Jason. <laughs> uh, what is it with these people I bring on my show that are just smart and stuff? Like, oh, please. We it. sit around talking about how you know everything. How <laughs> oh, smart no. you are. Nah, I'm, I'm really good at it. I'm a quick study. I think that is really my... Um, my one thing I'm I am that person who was cramming for the exam six hours before the Up exam until the last minute. Yeah, oh, you know, then because I was I, in the dorm down the hall doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't I don't feel motivated to do anything until I feel that press of a deadline like on my back and saying, get this done. And my kids are the same way. And I feel like I, you know, I want to apologize it's to them for that. It's a lot more maddening in your kids, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, I tell you what, nothing is better than having gotten them through uh, education. Just, you know, once we (laughs) once we crossed that little ocean, I felt like, okay, not that adulthood has been much easier for them, you know, as they're getting their feet under them and learning how life works and all that. But it's like, I just love that people who are able to have that insight to realize that Uh, we are a multitude of things. And I don't believe that we are our worst mistakes. And I don't believe that we are, Mm -hmm. we should be defined um, by our lowest point. Because that to me is just a just shows such a lack of charity. And Mm -hmm. I've always been a person always been a person who will always give someone my trust until they give me a reason to take it back. And if that means that I'm uh, 
you know, if I get burned or if I get hurt or if I get proven wrong, so be it. I will not feel bad for acting in good faith. I just will not. It's a great way to operate. Like I'm willing to bet. I don't, I don't know what you like about me. I don't know why you like me, but I'm willing to bet that if you listed three things or even five things that you like about me, they would all tie back to my worst moments because that's where I learned. Wow. I I think that would be an interesting sort of exercise for, for people to think about the things that they like about themselves and how that relates to their worst moments, because I think you're absolutely right. And why you shouldn't, or why people shouldn't wish to undo a lot of those Mm -hmm. things, you know, and, and I love your attitude and I love, uh, I love the way you share it with the world. So, um, so thank you for doing that. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. And I can tell you each one of those things is very tied, you know, I would not be as humble as I am. I would not be as compassionate as I am. I don't think I would have even been, not to say I am ridiculously smart, but as smart as I am, Mm -hmm. if I hadn't been forced by those things to examine the world and examine the world around me. And I always tell people that as hard as what I went through by my own hand. Mm -hmm. What I went through was, I don't think I would have liked the person I would have become without it. Yeah. And you know what? The the werewolf in me is allowed to now hang out in the living room because he's not that scary. (laughs) Are you feeding him some treats every now and then? You got to give him something to to Uh, chew on, you know? The the cats will if he behaves. Yes. See? (laughs) See? And that's what I want to encourage everybody to do is, you know, we look at the history of the werewolf, the more Eurocentric version of the werewolf as this sort of way of that we wrestle with our worst urges. And I say, yes, I say, let's sort of drop the, the adversarial aspect. And yeah, let's get to know that little pooch living inside us. And, you know, and, and yeah, uh, that's what I invite everyone to do. And, and I'll go ahead and and wrap it up here. But I just want to hear from everybody else who listened to this and had some insight, uh, reach out to me at ddarknesstime at gmail.com. Reach out to me on Twitter. I will, of course, you know, I'm most active on there, but I'm also on Facebook quite a bit. Um, I have the Facebook page for Ding Dong Darkness Time podcast. A lot of listeners will see me kind of traipsing around various true crime circles on Facebook as well. So, you know, feel free to hit me up if you see me in the gallery, uh, the prosecutor's gallery or in Jason's group for the Silver Linings Handbook. Uh, and give Jason's show a listen. Uh, why don't you? I love listening to the discussions. They kind of give me that bit of like NPR feeling, you know, whenever you, the way you do it. Like, and so when I was listening to my episode with you, I was like, man, it kind of started off. I felt like a like a guest on a real radio show. It was really cool. <laughs> so, so, well, I can tell you, a lot of people loved you. Well, thank you, and and, and they're gonna love you here too, man. I I promise you that. So anyway, that is all I got for now. Tune in next week where we are going to sit down and talk about something a little devilish, a little witchy. And that's all I'm going to say. 
This episode was produced by yours truly, Allison Nixon, and wouldn't be possible without the amazing contributions of countless friends, family, and supporters. Big shouts also go out to Nathaniel Dixon for all the show art, as well as Spencer Morlock and Ken Dixon for the music. I'll be back with something new next week. In the meantime, you know what to do. Be good, you little ding-dongs. This has been a Silver Linings Handbook podcast bonus episode. I'm Jason Blair. Thanks for joining us for this bonus. We'll talk to you all again in a few days. <laughs>